Getting settled in, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. And as I mentioned, we're continuing our series this morning called Living Hope, a study of the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter. Now, some of you may remember back in the 1950s, there was this television show. It was an iconic show. It was called Father Knows Best. And how many of y'all remember that? Okay, good, I don't. It was before my time, but some of the reruns of it continued on into the, into the 60s. Um, it depicted the lives of a middle-class Midwestern family living in the town of Springfield. And the whole premise of the show, this was the Andersons, and the whole premise was that the dad, Jim Anderson, would have this wise counsel, wise advice for his children as they came to him with all kinds of problems and issues. And so it was called Father Knows Best. Now, maybe you grew up in a home where you would say, yeah, my house was like that. It was idyllic. My dad really knew what was best, and he gave me good counsel. Maybe your home was anything but that. Um, But regardless of your experience with your earthly father, we have a heavenly father who always knows best. And he's recorded his best for us in his word. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at your best suffering. Now again, that almost sounds like an oxymoron, your best suffering, but we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. And the outline has three parts. First, the premise in verses 13 and 17. We're going to jump around a little bit. And then the promise in verses 14 through 16. And finally, the proof in verses 18 through 22. So that's the outline, and we'll read through the passage first. It's not a a real long passage. We'll read through it, and then we'll work our our way through it in more detail. So let me read it from the uh, NIV translation, beginning in verse 13. Who's gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, and God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of God. And we're going to dig into it. I want to start first by looking at the premise. We'll start in verse 13. We'll jump ahead to verse 17, and then we'll, we'll come back. So 
Peter begins this portion of the text, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he begins with a a rhetorical question. He asks, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? The question implies that there is a general sense of good in people. No matter what someone's nationality or culture or race People in general, and even their religion, people in general recognize good deeds and embrace those who do them. And we see things like a a man rushing in to save someone from a burning building or rushing into flood water to save someone. We saw heroic acts down in Tennessee over the past week. People pretty much everywhere will look at that and go, that's a good deed, that's good, and they would embrace those who would do this. Or here, someone's helping an elderly lady across the road. Or giving to somebody in need, giving generously out of compassion. We see those, and I think most people see those as good things. Or even rescuing wildlife, like this officer helping this little family of geese get across the road. Or this this last picture is a little boy in Bangladesh who risked his life to save Bambi from a flood. We look at those and almost universally, people recognize these as good deeds. And then on the other hand, almost all people recognize things like murder and theft as bad deeds. It's pretty universal and it points to the fact that God's standards are written on the heart of every human being. We see that in Romans chapter 2. It says this, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law or the word of God do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. It says people everywhere have a general sense of right and wrong, because God has placed it in them. Now because of that, most people When they see Christian values in action, they typically embrace them. The Christian church has done much to shape and transform societies all over the world. The church has been instrumental in elevating and protecting the status of women, abolishing slavery, enacting child labor laws, establishing orphanages and schools and hospitals and universities, not just in this country, but all around the world. Organizations like Compassion International, Food for the Hungry, Samaritan's Purse, World Relief, they're all Christian organizations. Even the Red Cross began as a Christian organization. And so history has proven over and over and over again that whenever the gospel penetrates a culture, that culture becomes more advanced, more educated, more compassionate, more humane as a result. There's much good being done in the name of Jesus Christ. I was, I was talking with a member of our church family just this week, and he's wanting to start a Bible study at his place of employment for the other employees. And this is not a Christian company, but they, they have a strong set of core values focused on respect for other people and teamwork. And so we began by looking at 
what is the alignment between Christian values and the goals of this business? And there's many of them. For instance, the Bible reinforces a strong work ethic. And in the, it, it, it upholds the highest standards for honesty and integrity, dedication, respect for others. It promotes healthy relationships in the workplace and within the family. And these are all things that any company should embrace and welcome in their people. So by and large, Christian values are seen as a great benefit to a company, to a nation, to the world. So Peter asks this question, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And the answer is, usually, normally, typically, nobody. But sadly, that's not always the case. The reality is we live in a fallen, broken, sin-filled world. And this affects all mankind and even creation. Creation is subject to frustration. There's death and decay. Now, I showed you a picture of a man, a police officer, helping a, a, a family of geese and their little goslings cross the road. Well, take a look at this. This poor guy was trying to do the same thing. <laughs> and look what happened to him. And the very ones he was trying to help attacked him. Look how proud they are. Yeah, we did it. We took him down. <laughs> you know? They're pretty excited. The, the, finally, that poor little gosling did get up on the curb. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel even within the church that like you're doing good, you're serving the Lord, you're serving God's people, and you're attacked for doing it? Not by a goose, but by other sheep, oftentimes. I feel like that. I, I use this animal example just so I wouldn't have to name any names. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's none of you guys. It's them out there. Those other churches, former churches, people who left. <laughs> it's them. But I mean, we feel like that. We're doing good, and yet we can be attacked for doing good. Now, like I said, we live in a fallen, broken, sin-filled world. It would be one thing if we were just attacked by an unbelieving world out there. But the fact is, Peter even addresses this in chapter, in, earlier in chapter 3 and verse 9. He's talking about within the church. That you could be insulted and evil could be done to you within the church, with each other. And we talked about that just a week ago. See, the fact is our Christian values will collide with the culture that we live in, and it'll even create tension within the church from time to time. One of the places where our Christian values collide with culture is whenever the profitability of a business or an, in, an industry is impacted by our values. Industries such as the gaming industry, the new cannabis industry, the sex trade industry. These are places where there's a conflict in values. And so, uh, for instance, the Marijuana Policy Project touts that since the first legalization of marijuana in Colorado and Washington in 2014, states have reported $7.9 billion of tax revenue from marijuana sales. 
And any Christian, you know, opposing the legalization of marijuana is probably going to be met with hostility in part because of the money that's involved. Sadly, there's a similar push to legalize prostitution, and they're trying to do it in the name of increased tax revenue and health safety. And so this is play, these are places where our values collide. There's also places where our Christian values will come in conflict with people's lifestyle choices. Just look at the issue of marriage and homosexuality. There's, there's great conflict there and businesses within our church have suffered, have been attacked because of their Christian values. And once again, it's not just with people out there, it's with people within the church. We have this conflict too because of our sin nature. So have you had that happen? Is this just me? Have you felt that? Yeah, I think almost every head is nodding. It can, especially when it's within the church, it can even make some people want to just leave the church. I'll just go back to my unbelieving friends. At least they're not hypocrites. They do what they believe in. You know, there can be that attitude because these types of things can be deeply hurtful and very discouraging. I'm in in. I'm amazed that Dan, our candidate for pastor of Family Ministries, is willing and even wanting to get back into pastoral ministry. He went through some very difficult things at the hands of other believers, and it's hard. And again, I want to—I look forward to in a couple of weeks us kind of diving into that story a little bit. But this happens within the church. You've heard it said if it. That the church is a bit like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, you wouldn't be able to stand the stink on the inside, right? Welcome to Riverside Community Church. We're broken people. And so we have these conflicts. So what should we do when we suffer for doing good? Well, let's jump ahead to the middle of our passage. Because there's a really definitive statement there in verse 17. And this will give us kind of a framework for processing through the rest of the text. So take a look at verse 17. It says, It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for evil. Now again, how do you react to that? It seems wrong on the surface, doesn't it? That it's better to suffer for doing good How is it better? Who's it better for? Well, this is saying it's better for the people who suffer. It's good that that painful thing happened to you. It's better than if it hadn't happened at all. That's kind of hard to process. How do we get our mind around that? And again, how do we reconcile that with the fact that God is a good and loving God? And and here, this is what it says. Well, as we work through this text, I want to look for some reasons why it is better that we suffer for doing good. And we're going to start in verse 17. Notice it says there, if it's God's will. It's better if it's God's will. Any suffering that comes our way only does so by the will of God. And to me, that makes it even harder to accept in some ways, doesn't it? The idea that this suffering for doing good is God's will. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering for doing good, I sometimes think this way. I think, I can accept God's will 
but this can't be God's will. This is sin. God wouldn't want somebody sin hurting me and my ministry or my family. So that's not God's will. I can think that way, but maybe you do too. But we have to be careful because we can confuse what's called God's perfect will with his permissive will. And there's a difference. There's many things that God does not want to happen. Sin is one of them. He's a holy God. He doesn't want anybody to sin ever. But yet he allows it. He allowed the fall of mankind in the garden. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. It met with his permissive will. Why does God do that? Well, in part because he gives mankind a will of our own. And in our sinfulness that we talked about, our will is often contrary, almost always contrary, if you get right down to it, to God's perfect will. But God allows us to have a will, to have volition. And so this, in part, creates this dynamic. That's one of the reasons why he allows it for a, a time being. But we have to go to the truth of God's word. We know this. God is a good God. And all that he does is only good all the time. And he has only his best in mind for you and for me. So if God allows something to happen in your life or in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's for good. And we can... We can count on that. It's for our own good. Listen to what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5. I'll read verses 3 through 5. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. That's crazy talk, isn't it? We rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And then, of course, there's a verse that you know really well, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those are his children. I think Jerry Bridges sums it up really well. He said this, he said, God does not delight in our sufferings. He brings only that which is necessary, but he does not shrink from that which will help us grow. If God allows it to happen in your life, it's for the good. So the first reason why it is better to suffer for doing good is because God uses this suffering for our good. He turns it around and he uses it for our good. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Remember that with Joseph? So that's the first thing. Let's look for some more reasons why it's better to suffer for doing good. Let's, let's go next to the promise that's in verses 14 through 16. We'll back all the way up to verse 13 here. And it says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. <clears throat> verse 14 says that even if you suffer... For doing what is right, you are blessed. How so? How are we blessed? Well, we need only go back a couple chapters to the beginning of this letter to see some of that blessing. Flip back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, and we'll look at verse, start in verse 3. 
it says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer great grief in all kinds of trial. I'd take the word may and say you will. You will suffer great grief in all kinds of trial. That passage is filled with blessing. We as believers have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's an eternal inheritance. And it's waiting. It's kept secure for us in heaven. Though now, for a little while, you're going to be attacked. For doing good. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. When we're hurting because of unjust suffering, we need to remember the ultimate blessing that God has in store for us. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. How big will those trials seem after just moments of sitting in heaven with the Lord where he's wiped every tear from our eye, all death has been defeated, we have this incredible inheritance that's beyond our imagining. How big will that seem? Just moments in and we have an eternity. See, we have to keep that into perspective. So the second reason is better to suffer for doing for doing good is that God blesses us in return. He sees our suffering. He has compassion and he blesses us. Now that might not be satisfying at all if you're not a follower of Christ. You might even wrestle with it as a believer, but we're called to live by faith and not by sight. And this is the truth of God's word. And when we're hurting, we need to cling to the truth of God's word. As Barb says, we need to run to truth. This is God's truth. There's blessing waiting for those who endure these momentary trials. And it's greater by far. So verse 14 continues. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be afraid. Some forms of suffering, let's be honest, they can be really frightening. They can be. Just this week, one of our missionaries faced a situation overseas. He called for urgent prayer. A former business associate was disgruntled. And so he went on the internet and he found some old information that connected our missionary with a former mission agency. And he threatened that he was going to out him. He was going to report him to the authorities. You know the person I'm talking about. He was here with his three children just not a couple months ago. And so he could face criminal prosecution he could face threats to his family. It could be the end of his ministry. They could be kicked out of the country. Years of learning the language and preparing could all be in jeopardy because of one disgruntled man. What do you do in a situation like that? That's frightening, but we don't have to be afraid. Our missionary brother didn't turn to fear. He turned to prayer. And he asked people to pray. One of the things he asked specifically for, he said, pray that God would just destroy the electronics. 
that have that information stored in them. That he pulled off the internet, which was since removed from the internet. Pray that God would destroy them and then bless him with abundant business to buy a new one with a clean hard drive. Oh, that was a pretty outrageous prayer, I thought, but I prayed that. Well, just yesterday, he had a meeting with this man and the hostilities have subsided. He had a chance to say, look, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm going to do everything for the glory of God to the best I can. I'm here teaching language, the English language, so that I can love and help people. And while they were in that meeting, the man's phone wouldn't turn on. <laughs> it was broke. <laughs> cool. I hope it stays that way. But he didn't resort to fear despite a frightening situation. He turned to the Lord in prayer and he trusted Take a look at this quote from the devotional today in a word. It says, faith does not replace fear. It puts fear in its proper place. No one goes through life without experiencing fear. But people who fear God and trust in him handle the threats and challenges, challenges of life much differently than those crippled by fear or filled with false confidence. Isn't that good? We can trust in the Lord. We don't have to be afraid. So, a third reason that it's better to suffer for doing good is that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be. The Lord is on our side. He's a good, gracious God. He's sovereign. He's in control of the events in our lives and in our world. Now, I just hit something and moved my place, but I'll get back to it here. So, three reasons so far why we don't have to be afraid. We're going to look at three more. Verse, verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The phrase to give an answer? In, in the Greek, that's just one word. Apologia. We get the word apologetics. Christian apologetics. Now, Christian apologetics doesn't mean apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry that my faith offended you. I, I, I won't, I'll hide it. I won't exercise it anymore. I'll try to just go away and be a stealthy Christian. No, that's not what it means. Apologetics means to give evidence, to give reason, to support the reason with evidence. And so um, it comes from, a, in the Greek culture, it comes from a courtroom scene. A legal scene. There would be the prosecution, and then the defense would give his apologia, his defense, his evidence. Paul did this um, in the book of Acts. We have an account where Paul gave his defense be before um, Festus. It was it was his apologia as he stood there be before King Agrippa. Before King Agrippa, he says, "I make my defense, my apologia." Now. We live in a world where you and I as believers are constantly on trial. People are looking at us. They're wondering, am I going to believe in this Jesus or am I not? Is there anything in their life which would convince me that it's true? You're on trial. The world is watching you. Sometimes they'll come out and ask their questions outright. And some of those might be really good questions. I think the world has really good questions. Things like, how can you be so calm in the midst of hard things? 
I hope they see that on you and they ask that question. Why are you not afraid like the other people? Why is there such a joy on your face? They might just come out and ask that. Other questions might be about the nature of your faith. Questions like, how can you know God really exists? How can you trust that the Bible is God's word? And if God is real, why is there so much suffering in the world? That's a primary question. I hear that a lot. We need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. If there's one thing I try to do in teaching the word of God, it's to give you answers, to help you prepare so that you can answer those questions because you're on trial. The world is watching you and they're often asking. We have to be prepared to give them a good answer. They deserve a good answer and there are good answers. So the fourth reason it is better to suffer for doing good is that we have a living hope. That's the title of our series, Living Hope. The, the graphic, it's a house there with the stone rolled away, right? We have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the best attested fact in ancient history. And that's what guarantees our hope. Now, if, if you want more resources to help you uh, be prepared to give an answer, these are some books I like, The Case for Christ with Chicago's Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I'm Glad You Asked by, by Boa and Moody. I really like that book. It's, it's very easy to get our minds around. Uh, Norman Geisler, I like Geisler, When Skeptics Ask, Breaking Down into Logical Arguments, Questions That People Have About Our Hope. So we need to be prepared to give an answer, but not just to give an answer. It's not only important that we're prepared, but it's also important that we do it the right way. Verse 15 and 16 continue. By the way, this, this portion of scripture has the worst verse breaks I've ever seen. <laughs> They're like in the middle of a sentence. I mean, I don't know how they decided on these ones, but again and again, I'm like, that, that, that's... That's not where the break should go. But anyway, continuing in verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That's the way we're to do it, with gentleness and respect. I was in uh, New York City on business many years ago, and I was in Times Square, and there was a man there shouting condemnation through a bullhorn. He, he, was, he was condemning people. You're all going to hell. And there was this anger in his voice and on his face. What was he doing? Sharing the good news. <laughs> I, I didn't hear any good news in that. It turned people away. It didn't draw them to Christ. It drove them away. And... The word says that we're to make the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ attractive. We're to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, both with our words and with our presentation of it. This wasn't attractive to me. I wanted to, I wanted to take it, give me a bullhorn, and I'll like smash it. But I wasn't going to overcome evil with evil. I'm not, was it pure evil? No. Were, the, were his motives right? Probably, maybe. But his method was totally wrong. There was no gentleness and respect there. So how we share the gospel matters as much as that we share the gospel. You can, you can 
argue with somebody, you can win the argument and you can lose the soul. And so when we give our reason, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. So next we come to the verse that we began with, 17. It's, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. We've covered that. So we're going to look at the third section then, which is the proof in verses 18 through 22. Look at how verse 18 begins with the word for. That's the start of another reason. For. Because. For this reason. So, for. Christ died. For sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Once for all. It was one sacrifice. It was completely sufficient to pay the penalty for every one of my sins, every one of your sins, for the sin of mankind. He became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and look what it says. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. The only righteous one ever for the unrighteous. That was the greatest act of injustice ever. Ever. The only sinless man and sinful mankind put him to death. Never has anyone suffered more for doing good. And yet look at the result to bring you and me to God. By his wounds, we're healed. Our broken relationship with the Lord, with God, is restored. And so we can stand before him in his presence, spotless, redeemed, cleansed by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, if God can take the greatest act of injustice ever and bring that kind of good from it, what do you think he could do with the unjust suffering in your life if you follow him obediently? What could he do with that? Can he turn it around for good? Absolutely. He promises to. And he's proven that he can in Jesus Christ. And what was the worst that these men could do to Jesus? It says there in verse 18, it says that he was put to death in the body. He was put to death in a body, and yet he was made alive by the Spirit. See, God holds victory not only over sin, but over death as well. This, too, is proven in Jesus Christ in his resurrection. You know, he tells us, why do you fear him who can harm the body, but not the one who can harm the body and soul in hell? See, we're not to fear those things. What's the worst that they can do to us? They put us to death in the body and we go to heaven. Darn. <laughs> I wanted to stay here on this lousy earth. I mean, I love life. Don't get me wrong. But when it's my time to go, don't be crying for me. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be in the presence of the Lord. And I mean that sincerely. I've drawn close enough to the Lord that I can't wait for that day. But there's more work to do in the meantime. So... He proved, he proved uh, this through uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory. So verse 19, through whom uh, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through, fire, through, through water. Now, 
This is a, a fascinating account. We could spend a whole hour just on this section. We're not going to, but a couple minutes. The spirits that he preached to, that does not, those are not the disembodied or the departed spirits of mankind. This word refers specifically to spirits as in fallen angels. Demons is what that's pointing to. And demons are not typically imprisoned. Not yet, but here they are. See, for the most part, they're, they're set free to go around the world and hassle you and me to create havoc and to do Satan's bidding. But here they're in prison, and this is an exception. And these were demons from around the time of Noah, and they did something that was so egregious that God locked them up even before the final day of judgment. He locked them up right away. What did they do exactly? Well, if we, I'll, I'll read it to you, but in, you can jot down the references and, and study it. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, it, it helps us understand this a little bit. It says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own homes, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And then listen to this. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, you can draw two things out of there. The first thing we see is that these fallen angels around the time of Noah abandoned their own homes and their places of authority. And secondly, what they did was similar to the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a parallel drawn between those two. And so in kind of understanding what may have happened or what likely happened, here a final piece of the puzzle is found in Genesis chapter 6. And I'll read you verse 4. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. That's strange, isn't it? The sons of God is a term used for angels. For angels. And they saw that the daughters of men, human women, were beautiful, were attractive. And they intermarried with them. And so these fallen angels or demons abandoned their own homes and interbred with human women. Producing this unusual offspring called the Nephilim. Now... Some people believe that the giant Goliath was one of these Nephilim. It refers to them as these men of renown. And uh, the text in Genesis 6 and 1 Peter 3 both talk about the flood of Noah immediately following this. Many believe, and, and, and I'm on board with this, that the Nephilim were one of the reasons why God brought the flood upon the earth and wiped out almost every living thing. Because had they been allowed to continue this sexual immorality and corrupt the human race, it would have even corrupt the very lineage to the Savior, Jesus Christ. God had to put an end to it. And it was so egregious, again, that he didn't let them hang out until the day of judgment. He locked them up in prison right then, where they are to this day. And so these texts, you have to put them together. But I put some references up there. I think I brought that up for you. Nope, I went too far ahead. Those references are, there you go. It's in 1 Peter 3. It's also in Jude 6 and 7 and Genesis 6, 4. 
Now it says that he went and he preached to them in prison. This would not have been a message of repentance and salvation for these demons. God has no plan. He's told us no plan of salvation for fallen angels. It would have been a message of eternal condemnation and victory for Christ Jesus. He's defeated them. They're through. So through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered his enemies and even conquered death itself. That's a fifth reason why it's better to suffer for doing good. Because through the suffering, Jesus, through his suffering, Jesus conquered sin and death. He's victorious. And we can have victory with him. Colossians 2.15 says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ is victorious. He conquered sin and death. Now verse 20, as I mentioned, speaks of the Ark of Noah. It says, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I have to imagine that the whole time, 120 years, he's building this ark. He's preaching righteousness. Repent, repent. The end is coming. Turn around. Confess your sin. Turn to God. Put your faith in him. Nobody did except the seven other members of his family. It says, in all, only eight were saved through the water. Yet, those who did trust in God, they were delivered out of that water. That water brought death to the rest of the world. But God delivered Noah and his family through it, through the waters, out of the waters of judgment. So verse 21 says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now this verse can be a little bit tricky. Some people read some unusual things into it. Noah and his family went into the floodwaters. They were completely surrounded above and below and on all sides. And these floodwaters represented death. These floodwaters brought about the death of all things living except for them. And God delivered them through those waters of death into a new life. And it says this symbolizes baptism. Now, when you go into baptism, what is the water of baptism? It symbolizes death in the same way. Romans, Romans 6 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may be raised to new life. And so in baptism, the water is like the death and burial of Christ and coming out of the water to a new life, new life in Christ. So it's relating. Baptism doesn't save. And just to be sure we don't get that idea, Peter reinforces not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So deliver, a believer delivered out of those waters to new life. And it's not the water that saves it's what it represents. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And our pledge of a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, a pledge, that's our agreement to the covenant of God, the means by which he can provide us a salvation. We're placing our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what he has accomplished on our behalf. This is what saves us. We saw kind of a... Um, 
we saw a beautiful picture of that just this last Sunday. And we heard beautiful testimonies of the saving power of Jesus Christ as we had our baptism service last Sunday afternoon. Here's, here's the point I want to make. God knew how to save Noah and his family through those waters. And he knows how to save you too. Hebrews 7.25 says, He, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to him. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's able to save completely. That's the sixth point. God knows how to save those who trust in him. He's proven it. He saved Noah. He saved me. He saved many of you. There's no one that Jesus Christ cannot save if you come to him on his terms. Humbly, in repentance, confessing your sin. Not trusting in your work, but trusting in what Christ has already done. His death, burial, and his resurrection. Verse 21 and 22 continue to make this point. It says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The victory is complete. All power and authority, other than God the Father himself, all power and authority will be subjected to Jesus Christ. You know the passage, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we need to wrap this up. Life is full of suffering, amen? <laughs> that was kind of a hesitant. Life is full of suffering, amen? Amen. Full of suffering. And some of that is just the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world. And creation, too, through the sin of mankind, is subjected to frustration. There's pandemics. There's hurricanes. There's aging. Ugh. And there's death. Now, those are just the fact as part of the consequence of the fall. We live in a broken world. But there's also suffering that comes because of wrong that we do. If we go speeding and get a ticket, that was wrong that we did. And there's a, there's a consequence. If you get angry and blow up at your boss and you're fired and lose your job, that's a consequence. And you know what? That suffering is good. It's good because it helps restrain our sinful indulgences. It, it, it's, like a, it's like a little spanking. Ooh, I better not do that. There's a consequence. It, re, it restrains us. The authorities are put there for that reason by God. So there's natural suffering. There's suffering for doing wrong, which is good. But there's something that's even better. And our text says that it's better if it's God's will that you should suffer for doing right, for doing good. Maybe you're serving the Lord hard. In, in, not perfectly, but you're doing good, right? You're, you're loving him, you're serving him, you're loving and serving his people, and somebody attacks you, like that goose, right? Only it's a sheep, or it's somebody out in the world. And how do, we, how do we handle that? What do we do? Because again, it can be deeply hurtful. And it can be really discouraging. 
It can really drag down our ministry if we're not careful. So what do we do? We have to go to the truth in God's word. Look at it again. It's better that we suffer for doing good. That's the premise. Because God uses it for our good. It's a promise. He blesses us in return. We have this eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. Our trials are light and momentary in comparison to the blessing that awaits us. God blesses us in return. We don't have to be afraid. Our God is good, and He's in control, and He cares for us. We're His children. We have a living hope. He's proven it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus conquered sin and death. He's victorious. And in the end, we will stand with him. God knows how to save those who trust in him. He proved it with Noah. He proved it with the believers, the resurrection of Jesus. He knows how to save us and he's able to save us completely. That's what makes it better to suffer for doing good. Think back at the pain that you've suffered for doing good and process through these items and recast it in your mind. It's good that that happened to me. Can you say that? It's good that that happened to me for these reasons. That's the truth of God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you, you said, in fact, you promised us that in this world we would have trouble. And we do. It's, it's all around us, God. But you say, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, God, I pray that the suffering that we face would be the result of our good deeds, not evil deeds. God, I pray that we would suffer well. We'd follow the example of Jesus Christ, not repaying evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good. And Lord, help us to keep our, our hearts and our minds fixed on the truth of your word, our eyes fixed on you. And help us to live this out in our lives, God. Not just hearers, but doers of your word. Give us the strength to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.